0: Welcome to the Age of Autonomy podcast. My name is Albert Perez, your host for this show. Throughout this podcast, we will be diving in-depth into subjects discussed in the book Crypto Asset Investing in the Age of Autonomy. You'll be able to learn from the author himself, Jake Ryan, as well as the CEO of Tradecraft Capital, James DiOrio. Crypto assets for years have ebbed and flowed in new cycles, but as of late, they have caught worldwide attention. This podcast is for those looking to understand blockchain technology, cryptocurrency, and the role it is set to play in the world that we know. Each episode reflects a step in the journey of understanding crypto asset investing. So let's hop right into this episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Age of Autonomy podcast. Today, we'll be diving in depth into topics discussed in the first chapter of crypto asset investing in the Age of Autonomy. Uh, This chapter focuses on the brief history of the Federal Reserve, monetary policy, and the U.S. dollar. And I'll personally note that when I read this chapter, it gave me a fresh perspective on uh, just how the Federal Reserve's decisions affect the U.S. economy and the U.S. dollar and really played a key building block for me um, as I kind of continue my journey into learning more about crypto assets and what all I can do with that. So today I have with me the author himself of crypto asset investing in the age of autonomy and CIO of Tradecraft Capital, Jake Ryan. Uh, And as well, I have serial entrepreneur and CEO of Tradecraft Capital, James Diorio. Uh, I'm excited to get started, y'all. How how are you guys doing?
1: Hey, Albert. How's it going? Good to see you. Awesome. Awesome. Doing doing good, Albert. Happy to be here.
0: Awesome. Uh, So I guess kicking it off. So Jake, uh, you have over 20 years of professional experience in software and technology and investing in traditional markets. And James, your professional experience in software and blockchain technology as well. I want to pick y'all's brains a little bit on uh, just why you think it's important that early investors understand uh, how the Federal Reserve operates and in the effects that it has um, overall, uh, just for our audience here.
1: Yeah, I think uh, one thing that is critical, especially with Bitcoin, is to understand a little bit more about the history of money. What money is, uh, how it plays a role, uh, some of the differences with uh, fiat currency versus commodity-backed currency and how that relates to sound money policies or unsound money money policies. Uh, The Federal Reserve, Uh, you know, manages the money supply for the United States. Uh, And in de facto, it really is the global uh, reserve currency uh, that was uh, taken up after uh, the Bretton Woods Agreement after World War II. And so uh, the Fed really has uh, reached to to everybody, every country and every person uh, because they are setting uh, monetary policy for effectively the global reserve currency. Um, I think it's important in any investment, uh, most investors are always looking to figure out, are we going into a period of inflation or deflation? Uh, How might the Federal Reserve react or set uh, monetary policy? Um, And what that can come down to is uh, the pricing of money or the setting of interest rates. Uh, All investments. Uh, start with the idea of a risk free rate and setting the interest rate for that Uh, US treasuries are considered a risk free uh, asset. And so the setting of those interest rates, then set the entire ladder for for both uh, duration risk. So how long uh, bonds are in terms of duration and credit risk, you know, are we talking about sovereign bonds or are we talking about uh, junk bonds? So all of that is set initially with, uh, with the setting of interest rates by the Federal Reserve. And so uh, the, the Federal Reserve really, you know, is critical to a lot of this. And so I thought we'd dive deeper uh, into talking about some of their policies, some of their history and how that affects everyone.
2: Yeah. and. And Albert, this is really important because while, you know, crypto and Bitcoin is very shiny right now and a lot of people are looking at it without a context of, you know, monetary policy and without context of where we've been, we can't really understand what this is. And, you know, I personally know a lot of um, speculative investors who are just kind of jumping in, but they don't really understand why why this was created, why it exists and how it fits into the world. So the context that Jake is creating, I think is imperative.
0: Awesome, yeah. So, so simply put, I guess the Federal Reserve, it just has so much weight when it comes to money markets, when it comes to anything of, of that sort. Um, and I, that's what I kind of want to jump into here is, uh, Jake, In when you first kind of started off in that first chapter, uh, you, it was really interesting. Some of the things that you said, uh, one of them on all quote, it says in the 1980s, the average multiple between the highest paid person, um, and the average worker of a company was about 10 to 20 times. And that might seem like a big difference, but in 2016, you stated that it was a ratio of 276 to one. Uh, that is, a." huge increase when i read that it really was kind of staggering to me i want to know what the federal reserve what how has that played a role in that overall growth how did that number get so big in the first place
1: yeah well that's going to be a complex uh, question and there's uh, many okay. angles and aspects of that uh one question that economists have been asking for for many decades here is productivity now how is it that uh you know we are having Less productivity uh, when you know so much uh, technology innovation and when so much is happening. You know how are we getting less productivity? Uh, for the most part, we're getting uh, a few people who are able to uh, take advantage of a lot of that uh, gains in technology, but it's not really getting dispersed across the entire uh, labor pool. Um, one of the you know there are going to be many reasons but one of the reasons is uh we have stock options or you know um different forms of compensation uh really starting in the 80s and 90s but in the 90s than we did in the past and so uh now most of the wealthy people they don't make their money from a job or from salary or from wages right they're making their money in their compensation structure from stock and from options that they've gotten, and uh, you know that has allowed them to get enormous uh, compensation packages, uh, and it's taxed differently. All right, so you and I, if if we were uh, fortunate enough to make you know one, two, three million dollars in wages or in salary, we're going to be taxed at that upper tax bracket of you know, something like 39% federally and then whatever it is for, for the state, if you have that. Mm. Uh, whereas, you know, Jeff Bezos or any of the, the wealthy people who are mostly getting uh, uh, compensation through uh, through options and through stock are paying that, sh- that long-term cap gains. If they're paying anything at all, they're paying, you know, that 20% uh, long-term cap gains. So just right there, you're talking about paying half the taxes on your wages than, than others. And so that has a key role. Um, uh, we haven't seen, we, we've seen more deflation or deflation um, cycle here this last 20 or 30 years. So from, uh, from the 1990s in, and to today, uh, especially after the 2008 uh, financial crisis, we have seen the Fed pump tons of money into the system in the form of bank reserves uh, to help try and provide liquidity and to, to stave off, you know, the Great Depression, uh, or another Great Depression. Uh, that might have been helpful when we were in a state of emergency, but they've kept those policies on for years and for years and and really over a decade now. Uh, so deflationary uh, Uh, policies, we aren't seeing any wage growth, right? So um, uh, no wages are really going up. And there's a a lot of reasons for that. But when wages don't increase, um, you know, we're not able to get productivity or get those gains to the middle class. Um, Just a couple more more things I want to touch on. Now that we're uh, ostensibly going into more of an inflationary uh, type environment, Uh, The concern is that inflation is going to outpace any uh, wage growth that you get. And so when the price of bread and cars and and food and rent start to increase in a dramatic fashion and and much faster than perhaps your wages do, um, then we're getting more and more uh, inequality. And so um, inflation is that regressive tax that hits everybody. Uh, but it can really um, hit the poor worse because, uh, you know, that is two, three, four, five, six 6% that comes off the top. And, and most of the middle class, if they're investing at all, uh, you know, have savings or are looking at, at having, uh, you know, funds in a, in a savings account, something like that. Whereas the rich, they are able to invest in uh, things that are inflation in protection. They're investing in real assets like you know, real estate, and they're able to keep up with inflation and do a much better return. And so, you know, all of these factor into uh, to wealth inequality and into uh, why productivity is <clears throat> really only helping a few and not getting dispersed across the entire labor pool.
0: Mm, that that makes a, I, I could see that now um, coming, you know, just from an inflationary perspective, I'm just confused as to like, why is it that uh, you know, the Fed seems to be inflating away the dollar, I would think that that's hurtful um, to them in the sense if you just if that inequality gap is continuing to grow um, as well. And, and that just makes more sense with 276 to one versus, you know, 10 to 20 times in the early 80s. Um, but you're talking about inflation, I want to kind of shift over to that to that topic. Uh, you it, in in that first chapter, you had sort of a dialogue. Um, you said it was you and your friend Dax kind of going back and forth he's trying to understand the federal reserve a little bit he's trying to understand you know just why um, is a federal reserve is it a, is it a positive is it a negative is it helpful or harmful the type of policies that they come out with um and i just kind of want you to to dive into that uh you you as well James as to what y'all think about the federal reserves and their in their policies um when it comes to inflation do you think it is harmful do you think it is helpful um over the past you know 50 years let's say
1: Yeah, I'll I'll go ahead and just start that. And and James, you kick it off. Uh, I I think that, uh, you know, the forefathers of the uh, of the US, you know, they really didn't want us to have a central bank. They were explicit about it. They wanted to have gold and silver be the backing and to ensure that we that this new uh, country did not have a central bank. Um, So that's one of the reasons why you don't hear uh, the Federal Reserve called the U.S. Central Bank, right? It's the Federal Reserve. Um, neither federal nor does it have any reserves. Um, I mean, it is a global, it's a network of, of, of banks that have the right to set and print uh, money. And so that's a very, very valuable right. They don't answer to any, anybody. They aren't uh, really publicly elected. They, they're not a part of the government. Uh, and a lot of that's due to the fact they needed to circumvent the will of the the founders of the country. Um, this uh, is an amazing power to be able to to print money and and get paid uh, paid for that. And they were you know constrained uh, by being um, set or having uh, gold backing the U.S. dollar. Um, in the in 1929 uh, was kind of the first time where um they were constrained and uh and the president wanted to go ahead and and uh pull back and make it illegal for uh u.s citizens to own gold um they needed- why, why is
0: that what what, is, what does that do if if a u.s citizen were to own gold what what is the difference like why would he cut back on that
1: yeah, well, since it was gold back, they really actually needed the gold uh, to be able to spend in the co- economy. They had to worry about uh, not having enough gold as money uh, within the system, and and being uh, not able to have m- enough money would would actually take back from from the economy. Um, they also needed to back the the dollar, right? They needed that to be the the governing currency, and so. Um, Ultimately, what happened is, I don't know, four or six months after they uh, made it illegal for for people to own gold, uh, they had a repricing of the U.S. dollar and they devalued mm. the dollar by about 40 percent. And so if you mm. were able to keep that gold, um, I don't remember, I think it was, you know, $20 to $34 or, or something like that was, was the repricing. Okay. Uh, but you ended up having two markets. There was the, you know, legal uh, market where you could trade a dollar for gold, but then in the commodity and in the other markets, gold was trading uh, much higher or the value of the dollar was much less. And so, um, you know, we had that problem for some time. Um, Yeah, I can go into some more of it, but James, how about you?
2: Well, I I think ultimately what, you know, what you're pointing to here is you got to look at who's being served and, and what's trying to be accomplished here. So the Fed has certain mandates and they're always working inside of that. Um, those may not always be aligned with the, you know, the the average person, right And that's part of the conflict that we've got here, right? When we came off the gold standard, what you saw is money continues to devalue, right? It just continues to devalue. Now the Fed's got a lot of tricks that it can use, it's got a certain playbook that it used and it knows how to do that. And a lot of what they're doing is trying to manage the economy overall. But, you know, Jake, you talked about opportunity in the very beginning, right? Well, the the gap in wealth, right? That's a op- partially opportunity. The average person having the same opportunities to participate in um, not just earning wages, but options and stock and things like that. Well, the corollary to that is if you're saving, right, and you have inflation going on, all of a sudden you've got 90, let's let's say it's 5%, right? You've got 95 cents is what your dollar is worth compared to what it was a year ago. And it just continues to degrade over time and degrade over time and degrade over time. So when you ask, is the Fed good? Is this a good thing? I think it depends on what you're trying to accomplish because keeping the entire economy propped up is important to a point, but not if it artificially does it. And there's an impact that really hurts The everyman, and that's something that I don't think many people really realize as they look at what's going on.
0: Mm, Interesting. Uh, There's been a lot of talk uh, recently in in the news um, as far as you know, Fed inflation, a lot of printing. But I want to. I'm just trying to go back um, based off that gold standard in that sort of topic. Why don't we just shift back to the gold standard? What What is stopping us from doing that? What are some positives and some negatives from that? Uh, Because it seems like if there's no you know cap on how much we could print, you know, then that's just going to lessen the dollar value. That's going to hurt savers. That's going to hurt, you know, average citizens. I, I'm I'm looking for positives here when it comes to um, being on the on the U.S. dollar.
1: Well, let's see both sides. So right now, uh, political power they can do affect the government can do effectively anything it wants. It it, uh, it can. It, we're not balancing the budget. Uh, We have no budget to manage to, Uh, they can uh, print more, that allows them, uh, you know, to stay in power, more and more power, Um, and there isn't any reason uh, for them to give up that power. If we went back to a gold standard, they would be constrained, right? We would actually have to have a budget, we would uh, we would have to, you know, for one thing that would cause a, a major recession and nobody has the political will uh, right now to do such a thing. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, there, there isn't any upside for them to go to back to a gold standard because we have gone for so long that getting us back onto sound fiscal ground would be expensive and i don't think anybody has the political will
2: yeah and, and it would make dollars actually scarce and that's not what the fed wants they want to be able to print whatever they need whenever they need it and that's just not possible if you revert back to a gold standard not the way mm. they're not the way they're doing it today
0: mm, interesting I think, so uh, i guess that, that kind of leads into you're talking about um, how nixon was actually able to you know Turn into fiat money. A, I can you explain just what fiat means, what what fiat money is, and then um, B, you know, if because Nixon did that, how did that kind of shift? Did that shift away from the gold standard? As far as like you said, it it, it it's not so much of a a scarce a scarcity. Uh, they could print whatever they want. Like I'm I'm just trying to understand how we were able to get on uh, basically this unlimited printing amount in the first place because it didn't seem like it was um, like this all throughout history.
1: Yeah, it, it happens in phases and it's happened over and over uh, throughout history. But let's talk about uh, our example. So after Bretton Woods, uh, the agreement after World War II was that the United States dollar would be backed by gold and then all of the other sovereign currencies would have a uh, uh, connection uh, in a, uh, to, to the US dollars, right? So there would be, uh, a trading amount, and so that would be fixed uh, at that time. Uh, you know, the U.S. dollar was connected and bound by gold. We continued to do that uh, through the the 50s and through the 60s, and a lot of the international uh, players, a lot of uh, countries, started to see that the U.S. government was paying or had a lot more expenditures than the amount of gold they had in the bank. And so they were very curious, like, how are they able to spend so much when I know they don't have that much uh, gold in the bank? And so Charles de Gaulle of France started uh, effectively a currency war. And what he did was he went to the, the window of the Fed and he just continued to uh, trade dollars for gold. And I think we ended up maybe losing, I don't know, 10 to 20% of our gold reserves as he continued to exchange dollars for gold. And Nixon ultimately said, all right, we're going to do a temporary pause on being able to trade dollars for gold, right? And so uh, uh, De Gaulle, with his, you know, effectively a a currency war, um, halted, um, you know, that was the response of Nixon is just to to halt that trading window temporarily. Uh, and, and now we're call it, you know, whatever, 60 years later, something like that, 50, 60 years later, we still have that window closed. And uh, and the reason is we, we can't get back on that gold standard. Um, <laughs> and so it'll be that way for a while. Fiat currency is really just by declaration. It's backed by the full faith of the government. and. Mm. You know, they're somewhat right. Uh, Greenspan has said, and many others have said, you know, we will never default on our loans or on our U.S. treasuries. And he's right. We will never nominally default. However, the purchasing power of each of those U.S. dollars may be drastically different than, you know, when somebody went started to buy the bond versus when it went to maturity. And so it's really about not nominally defaulting on those Debts or those obligations, but is the amount of purchasing power the same when you entered into that bond or loan agreement? And it's absolutely not, right? Mm. So that's kind of what's going on uh, from historical perspective.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it and it's not just market driven, right? So it's not when you've got massive QE, right? You're going to have a dollar devalue. A dollar is not a dollar is not a dollar is not a dollar. Now gold, because gold is gold it's scarce, it's hard to get, and it may have fluctuations in the market, but it's not subject to the same type of, I'm going to use the word manipulations, that a fiat currency has. So it's a very, very different animal.
0: Mm. Interesting. You you mentioned QE. Can can you kind of elaborate more on on what that is? QE. Well,
2: so yeah, uh, QE is quantitative easing. So that's Mm. where The government will go ahead and put more dollars into circulation. And uh interesting, you know, fun fact, last year, 24% of all the dollars in circulation were created last year during the pandemic, which is staggering if you think about it. You know, and it's one of the ways that you know tools that's used to stimulate the economy or to get people um uh well in many ways to save them i mean the money was printed and it was printed to really help people out during the pandemic but there's a massive impact to that and we're seeing that uh today we're seeing that you know impact with the cpi which is a 5.4 percent year to year um mm-hmm. and our last numbers that came out and ultimately from a logical standpoint there's an impact to actions Right. You flood that, you put that much money into the marketplace, you're going to have impact. What's the impact? You're going to have inflation. What's the impact? Um, the buying power of the dollar is going to be less and less. And ultimately, that's what you know has a lot of people turning to bear assets like gold, like Bitcoin. That's one of the reasons that a lot of the top investors turned to crypto assets is as a hedge against that. Hmm. Jake, you want to um,
1: dive a little more in there? I think a lot of people think quantitative easing was new, like it was something novel that happened after the 2008 financial crisis. And it's actually not new. Um, From, you know, after World War II, we had a debt to GDP of something like 114%. And so it was a very high debt to GDP. Uh, A lot of people say, if you get above 120% debt to GDP, it's unsustainable and ultimately that currency is gonna collapse. But uh, you know, we were at 114%, uh, it was 1947 and the government started uh, a QE effectively. And what it did was suppress interest rates below the inflation rate to ultimately uh, uh, inflate the debt away. And so what happens is uh, these things happen in cycles. Um, you know, we had a really great bond bull cycle from 1981 to about August 6th of 2020. Uh, but from 1947 to 1981, we were in a, a bull, uh, a bear market in bonds really, because the real rate that is the, the interest rate of the bond minus inflation, it was negative, you know, and, and it was negative for 30, whatever, 34 years. Uh, and so if you put money in uh, into bonds you were locking in a loss now it didn't you know you were you h- had an interest rate but inflation wasn't in fact taking away and that was how uh, the federal government ended up taking the debt to GDP from something like 114 percent down to I want to say it was in the mid 30 percent so I think in 1980 or something like that we had debt to GDP of 38% or something like that. So they really were able to inflate the debt away and we were able to get back control. Now we had a bunch of other problems that happened in the 70s and, and early 80s. We had uh, inflation just ripping, rip roaring through the 70s and uh, we came in, we had Paul Volcker and, and, uh, come in and really set interest rates higher than inflation and go through that massive recession, double dip recession and then uh, he was able to get control of inflation. But that's the real scare is sometimes when you start that fire of inflation, uh, it, it'll keep ripping and there is not a whole lot you can do to to stop it. And so um, typically what the Fed does to uh, curb or, or maintain control of inflation is they'll raise interest rates. And that's what mm-hmm. they've done for the past, you know, 40 years. Well, they're not able to use that tool in the tool belt anymore because our debt is so high. Um, if you look at the, just the interest expenditure, uh, on $29 trillion of debt, which is how much debt the U S government has right now, Mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about something like $500, $600 billion a year, just on interest expense. That's crazy. If the interest rate were to rise one point, right? rise from, you know, I think the 10-year Treasury is something like 1.35%, you know, if we ended up having 2.5% interest rate, which is not, you know, historically, that's still low. Uh, Typically, 4% would be kind of, you know, 3 to 5%, 3 to 6% for the 10-year Treasury would be a a, a normal nominal interest rate. But if we were to take that interest rate up, one percentage point to something like two and a half percent, you're taking the interest expense to well over a trillion dollars a year. And so the, the Fed is really boxed in, right? They, they have to keep interest rates suppressed for some time. Last time it was 34 years. How many times this time? Well, it's probably a few decades, right? And what are they gonna do when uh, inflation comes and it's rip roaring, when, when their main tool to curb inflation they're not able to use, and so that's the real scare. Uh, mm. Is is when they're presented with uh, with an, a much higher inflation than expected. How are they going to manage that?
0: Interesting, I, and I, I believe currently we have an interest rate that's close to zero. I, I what are the long term impacts of when you have an interest rate that stays so low? Um, like what what's the long term impact? on that versus if it let's say that interest rate was a four or five percent or you know that might be high but well, i'm just kind of um to understand what that long-term impact looks like
1: sure think about it just from a personal perspective what happens when you mm-hmm. get a zero percent credit card you know what do you do as a person? well you, you might spend it more right you may take on a whole lot more debt because it, hey it's zero percent i'll pay it off later right mm. it's not dissimilar though i do hate to make those uh, analogies from a government to, to a person but um, when interest rates are low uh, the price of money is low and so businesses and you know and people are going to go out borrow money and uh, and hopefully they're good allocators of capital and they're going to generate products and services and really good profits and if they make profits then they're going to be able to pay off those those um, debts no problem well as we get more and more revenue, and more and more profits, you know that the economy starts to heat up. Uh, there are only there's always only so much amount of commodities or, or resources, and so uh, when the economy heats up, we start to get um, everybody going for those scarce resources. And those uh, resources, the price can go up again. That's inflation, and so. Um, that's really what can happen when you keep interest rates low for a long time. Um, that was a chief complaint of Greenspan is that, that he left interest rates too low for too long. Uh, we ended up having a massive asset bubble. I think we had two under Greenspan. One was the dot-com bubble and then one was the 2008 uh, real estate uh, crisis. Um, and so that's really what can happen is that bubbles form. Uh, and I think we can see bubbles forming in the markets right now. I mean, you've got the stock market, you know, all time highs during what basically amounts to an economic uh, depression, at least a recession right through the pandemic. It's not like we've had a great economy, uh, yet the stock market is it's at like all- decoupled. It's completely decoupled. Uh, you're seeing price to earnings at, you know, 40 percent or something like that. Um, you know, good, fair value, typically you would see something like, let's say, 15, uh, uh, 15 times. So you, you might see price uh, price to earnings or a, a P.E. ratio in the stock market drastically lower. You're seeing uh, uh, real estate explode, right? Just anecdotally, I have a couple friends in in L.A. This is, you know, summertime of, of 2021. Uh, they're trying to buy a house. They're putting in, you know, hundred thousand dollars over ask right and they're still not getting the house because uh, you know there is limited supply of homes and there is infinite money chasing finite scarce assets and so we're seeing bubbles form in all kinds of of uh, markets and so i think that continues as well that is one of the the problems and one of the knock-on effects of quantitative easing is that when you have infinite money chasing finite resources, you're gonna get bubbles. And we're getting bigger and bigger bubbles. Mm. Yep.
2: It, well it seems like and now you're dealing with opportunity and impact again. Mm-hmm. Right. So so just, just to add on to that, Albert, if from you know my my grandparents, right? They always said never use credit. Does it just never use credit, always use cash. Well, if you're trying to compete in that real estate market that Jake's talking about. A lot of people don't have that million dollars, million one, million two, million three to go out there. So the institutions are out there and they're able to participate in the market and have their money grow. Well, what's what's the everyman doing, right? Or the everywoman? Well, putting money in a savings account? Well, savings isn't saving if your dollar is worth less each and every year. So in an inflationary market, as Jake mentioned, if that dollar continues to drop, people think, well, I'm saving money. Well, you're actually not saving money. You're losing money. So, how do people have those opportunities? How can they go ahead and have that money grow in a market which is designed so the dollar is worth less and less and less and less, right? And that's one of the biggest challenges through all of this.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much uh, for for coming on to the show. Um, I mean. I- I think we covered a lot here on the Fed. Um, anybody who's listening, um, make sure to drop us a review. If you guys learned something, uh, I'm, we're, we're always taking questions. We want everybody to learn. Um, go grab the book, Crypto Asset Investing um, we're in the Age of Autonomy. It's available on Amazon, um, and we'll post more links in the show notes below. But James and Jake, thank you very much for uh, joining me today. Thanks for listening. If you learned something new, leave a review. We'd love to get feedback in order to make this show better for every listener. If you want to dive more into the subject we just spoke about in today's episode, click the link in the show notes to order crypto asset investing in the Age of Autonomy. As well, you can get to know Jake and James better by reading their bios in the show notes below. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you again next time on the Age of Autonomy podcast.